Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's gospel lesson from Luke chapter 14, verse 20, verses 25 to 27. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. It's very good to be with you again on this uh, kind of cloudy July day. We are continuing uh, in the summer series this week with things which I wish Jesus never said. Now, let me begin with a confession. When Davis texted me on Monday morning with this, would you be available to preach this weekend if needed? My initial thought turned quickly to things that I wish Davis had never said. (laughs) My initial hesitation turned into downright consternation when going to my file. I realized I had never preached this text before, so I had my week cut out for me. It turns out that even 30 years in the pulpit, I had kept a rather respectful distance away from this text. Luke 14, 25 through 27 is what is commonly known in the preacher business as a hard text. On first reading, it is problematic and troublesome. Did anybody notice that, by the way, upon first hearing this text this morning? Hate your families? Disregard the very people that have cared for you, fed you, clothed you, changed your diapers, probably on both sides of the journey? Really, Jesus? You've got to be kidding, right? Whatever happened to love your neighbor? Remember all that neighbor series we had just a little bit ago? And even your enemy, as Jesus taught only four chapters ago when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, saying, your neighbor is your enemy, and I'm calling you to love them. So what happened? Well, what we have in front of us today is this rather odd admonition to hate. And as I said, in particular, to hate those who, for the most part, have been pretty darn good to you, who have provided us the necessary environment that we needed to grow up and to thrive. Well, as I started to think about this, it crossed my mind that maybe, now just maybe, because I'm still trying to figure out what's going on in this text, maybe, just maybe, this is an example, and again, to this Yankee, this rather odd, it seems to me, and again, I'm a Yankee, this rather odd southern custom of the blessing of the heart. Now, Jesus, as you may recall or don't know, was from the southern part of Israel, so perhaps that's what's going on here. You know how it works. It's acting one way publicly, but thinking another way privately. And my, as I've seen it, it can be used both in direct address, and usually the custom is in third-party conversation. Now, the direct address. You're at a dinner party or coffee hour down at the church, and someone is going on saying one stupid thing after another, and suddenly, to your horror, they turn to you and ask you what you think. You don't want to say that you think they're an idiot, 
So something along this, and you, so you appeal to the blessing your heart tradition. Well, bless your heart. That is certainly one thing to think. Now, as I said, more common usage is in that third party type. You're sharing with someone else your deep concern for another, which the scripture actually calls gossip. Something along these lines. Did you hear about Betty Lou? She's getting married for the fifth time. Bless her heart. (laughs) Or perhaps this one. One thing that you can say about Jim is he really can put the six-packs away. Bless his heart. You get the idea. Saying and doing one thing publicly, but privately thinking and acting another way. Well, after about two seconds of reflection and contemplation, it seemed to me, nah, that really doesn't sound anything at all like Jesus. So then that caused me to turn to the smart people, the folks who write the commentaries. And upon going there, I learned this, that it turns out that the Greek word miseo, which means hate, can be used in two different ways. It can mean the way that you and I would first think, that is that you have a strong, strong disregard for a particular person or thing. Or it can mean a point of comparison, that is, loving one thing more than another, loving one person more than another. Now, in the parallel passage in Matthew, which is Matthew 10, 37 through 39, I think there's a slide for it. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake, however, will find it. Well, it seems to me quite obvious then that what Jesus has in mind here, and again, because we certainly know because of the parallel text in Matthew, he's using hyperbole. He wants us to realize that as much as we love those who are nearest and dearest to us, he's calling us to still love him more. So great in one sense, problem solved, right? That was easy enough. Now don't go anywhere, I'm still, I'm not done yet. There's more to come here. Perhaps not all that hard, just had to do a quick little word study, and now we're good to go. Now all that is required of you and me is to love this first century Jewish rabbi more than our parents, our spouses, our children, and our best friends. Easy enough, right? All that you and I have to do now is to prefer this young man whom we have pretty much nothing in common with physically, with whom we've never met, and when you get down right to it, we really don't have a whole lot in common with. All that you and I have to do, in other words, is to love him more than the people in our lives who mean everything to us. A hard text, as the preachers say. Yeah, I guess it would be much easier if Jesus really had never said this. Still, when we look again at the Scripture we may gain a little more context. So let me make several observations about the text. Verse 25 refers to the crowds that were accompanying him. It's explicit. He turns to the crowds. Two thoughts on this. Luke is relating a journey here. This section of his gospel is telling the story of Jesus' long road to Jerusalem. He's on a mission. 
He has a purpose to accomplish and there are quite a large number of folks who have decided to walk along with him to see what's going on with him. This was established in chapter 9, verse 51, when the scripture says, And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you were to turn there in your Bible, you would see that in many translations, there's actually a little bit of a space between 950 and 951 because this is the beginning in Luke's gospel of the last part of his gospel. He's got a long story to tell yet, but this is a turning point because this is when Jesus begins to actively make his way to the cross. He's on a mission, a purpose to accomplish, and there are quite a large number of folks who have decided to walk along with him. And the setting of his face is a Semitic idiom that implies a strong, even grim determination, a strong, even grim determination to get to the place where you're going. It's like some of you heading for the coffee downstairs after worship. That was a joke, but I won't try it again, so there we go. (laughs) Back to the sermon. The road that Jesus is walking along with a lot of folks who may or may not understand where he is going. Now, second, it's crucial to understand that Jesus turns to the crowd when he makes the statement that comprises our text today. He's not whispering this hard saying to the twelve, the ones closest to him, the ones who've been hearing him on a daily basis share and preach. He's saying this to everybody, everyone. This is a word that's shouted to the crowd, a hard word for everyone, no exceptions, no exemptions. And that being the case, that means that Jesus is most definitely speaking to you and to me. So what exactly then is it that he's asking of us? In other words, why does Jesus ask us to hate anyone, let alone the nearest and dearest to us? Now look again at verse 26. Look at the progression in that. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, spouse, and children, brothers and sisters, there in a few words, is the total progression of your life. From parents, to siblings, to a beloved one, to children. The entire progression of a person's life. And particularly in Jesus' time, in the way folks would understand it, because they understand their lives as primarily constituted through their relationships, that means it's their entire identity who they are completely. You know, in Jesus' day, most folks never really saw more people than are assembled in this room today. You were born in a village, and you stayed there until you died there. So your relationships meant everything, the people closest to you. They gave you everything. Most importantly, they gave you your identity. You were the sum total, in other words, of your kinfolk. Not in our time so much. I could ask you to raise your hands, but I won't. 
but my hunch is quite a few of you, like me, are not native to Nashville. You've traveled around quite a bit. Some of you maybe even all over the world. We've not been bound by a set group of relationships. But Jesus doesn't let us 21st century Americans off either because he goes on to say, brothers and sisters, yes, and even your life itself. So if you think of your identity as constituted by your relationships or if you think of your identity primarily as an individual, Jesus is talking to you. Yet at the same time, it's really hard to understand this hate talk, isn't it? Even as we look at verse 27. And it's only in the context of verse 27 that you and I can really begin, I think, to understand what's going on in his call to love him more. He's already, as I said, walking on his way to the cross. In verse 27, he is simply stating the obvious. If you're going to follow him, if you're going to be his disciple, well, that means you have to walk in the way that he has walked. His way, not the way we might choose. You know, it's interesting, to me anyway, but crucifixion was an incredibly inefficient way to execute a person. One thing we know about the Romans is they were a very efficient people. They built those roads because they knew they had to have roads if they were going to control the entire world, known to them. They deployed armies in such a way that they could do this. They had navies to back those up. They created laws in order to govern the newly conquered territories. The Romans were an extremely efficient set of people. But crucifixion, as I said, is not an efficient way at all to kill somebody. It takes between four hours and, excuse me, six hours and four days for the victim to die. Jesus, of course, dies quickly because he's been beaten nearly half to death before he's ever crucified. Not only that, you have to have guards stationed at the cross to keep family and friends from offering aid to the victim. So the whole point of such a death for these very efficient Romans is to humiliate the victim, to make them a public spectacle so that no one who sees them would ever doubt Rome's power to deal in a terrible and harsh way with their enemies, with anyone who could question Rome's authority. And an important part of the humiliation was, of course, to have the condemned person carry the crossbeam to the point of execution. Average weight of the crossbeam would have been about 100 pounds. So think about that. Picture that. Jesus, already dying because of his beating, now is forced to carry a considerable distance a 100-pound weight. In Jerusalem, crucifixion was probably a fairly common sight. And anyone who saw the person carrying that crossbeam knew immediately everything that they needed to know about that person. They were condemned. They were literally a dead person walking. There was no ambiguity about the potential for that person. There was no question about their personal mission or vision statement. All choices and decisions lay in that person's past. 
Their destiny was clear. It was only now a matter of time. No, if you were alive in Jesus' time and you saw a person carrying a cross, you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt where they were headed, who they were, and what they were doing. You see, a person who carries a cross is obviously committed completely to the task. There's only really one place now in which they travel, only one appointment that they now must keep. They are alive but they're already counted among the dead. I imagine many of you, like me, have had opportunity to go to Washington, D.C., and of course now, even though it's still fairly recent, the Vietnam War Memorial, the Veterans Memorial, is a striking object. It's striking in its simplicity. Etched in black granite are the names of over 58,000 Americans who went to Vietnam but did not return. Since its opening in 1982, it has stirred deep emotions. Many folks who visit will, of course, walk by the entire monument, pausing from time to time. Others will stop looking for certain names, the name of a loved one, a child, a husband, a father. Wiping away tears, they trace the name with their fingers. Well, for three Vietnam veterans, Robert Bedker, Willard Craig, and Daryl Lausch, a visit to the memorial must be especially poignant, for they can walk past the long ebony wall and find their own names carved there. Because of a data coding error, each of them was incorrectly listed as killed in action. Those three men, even though they are alive, are counted among the dead. It seems to me that we can understand all this hatred talk about family, of course, is not a call to dislike people, let alone the people who are nearest and dearest to us. Instead, as I said, it's a call to love Christ more. And I suppose that much of our Christian life consists of our attempts, some successful and some less so, of loving Jesus just a little bit more than the other people and things that we love. But then he goes ahead and talks this cross-carrying talk. And if you want to get right down to it, that's what I wish Jesus had never said. Because that's the tough part. I can on my best days do the incremental, just a little more devotion to God than others. But this invitation is given to one who has already died. Well, how do you do that? Well, the only answer is Jesus. Because Jesus alone walks in the way of the cross without hesitation. How does he do that? What would compel that good man to go to that terrible place, that innocent man, that righteous man? Why would he make his way to Jerusalem with grim determination, with an unrelenting unrelenting purpose? The answer actually is quite simple, but simultaneously earth-shattering. Jesus walks in the way of the cross with unrelenting purpose because he has you and me in mind. He goes there that you and I might be saved. He goes to his death in order that you and I might have life. 
He goes with resolve because he has put aside all other loves, all other destinies in order to find us and to save us. Those whom he loves more. You and me I'm talking about. This is no abstraction. This is real. You and me more than anyone or anything else. So Jesus puts aside all family and close relationships in order to rescue strangers like you and me. I think that one of the great temptations that we face as Christians is to turn our faith into only a set of doctrines to believe or a set of practices to keep. The truth is that being a Christian really means this. You and I are called to fall in love with Jesus of Nazareth. You and I are called to find his love in ourselves through him and allow his love to be, made, to be offered to others. So oddly enough, to hate like a Christian really means to love Jesus and allow him to order all of our other loves. For most of us, of course, it's not so much that we love bad things or bad people. It's just sometimes that we love too much or too little. To love Jesus first is to accept his invitation to walk in his path, which is the difficult road, but one that he has trailblazed for us. He invites us to give our lives away, to be numbered among the dead even as we live, so that others might come to know just how much God really loves them too. Because he really does. No exceptions. No exceptions. The invitation to walk in the way of the cross is not a casual commitment. It's not one that we can take up as a hobby or do in our leisure hours, even though most of the time that's what I try to do, I have to admit. The Japanese theologian Kasuki Koyama said it very well when he wrote that there really can be no handle on the cross. We can't carry the cross like a briefcase or a backpack that we casually pick up or casually set down again. No, to take up the cross is a commitment for all times and all places. And it is only made possible because of the one who first walked it for us. The invitation to take up our cross is to be reminded first of the depth and breadth of God's amazing love for you and me. It really is not so much a command to do something as it is the call to remember. Remember, folks, the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and wants to love through you. You see, the call to the cross is only given to those whom God does love with an abandon that we really cannot begin to fully comprehend. So what does that mean for you? Well, let me ask you this. Are there people in your life that you have tried to love in a way that doesn't help? Doesn't help them and doesn't help you? If that's the case, then open your life. Let Jesus order that love. Or maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your prestige. Maybe it's the house you live in. Are there things that you're trying to love more than they can really take? Open your life and let Jesus love in you and through you. Now, one more thing. It may well be the case, because we got enough folks here, it may well be the case that when this text was read, you said, well, what's so hard about that? I really already don't like my parents or my spouse. Don't get me going on the kids. Open your life to the one who went to the cross 
and allow him to love in you and through you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.